Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim Dwyer. And leaving aside the old grumpy groundhog up there in uh, Saginaw. We'll talk about him at the end of the show. <laughs> Think Caddyshack here, folks. Obviously, uh, the big sort of uh, chit-chat all week and media focus has been on the interesting goings-on in the economy. Um, don't panic. George Bush, at least, is not in charge of this problem. <laughs> But it is important to remember that uh, during the uh, tax-cutting frenzied years of the Reagan-Bush regimes over the past uh, 18 years here, uh, we've seen uh, American federal debt go from about $2 trillion to $9 trillion. So that gives you an idea of how much uh, government indebtedness is occurring and of course this story really is about debt bad debt what is the debt who owns the debt it's all a very interesting story and if you look at some of the uh, what I call the long-term graphs you know that that uh, are sort of useful about analyzing what's going on consumer borrowing has been sort of it sort of peaked in 2002 and it's just been sort of level uh, durable goods have been all over the map that's important construction spending has declined rapidly the trade deficit has uh, increased uh, substantially for the most part productivity has been steadily declining employment is sort of uh, been flat uh, for quite some time and of course the housing supply has uh, rapidly increased while new home sales have rapidly decreased. And the sales of existing homes have been stagnant. And just uh, a typical headline from last week's uh, um, news is from the Bloomberg News on the 16th of August. It says Nestle, one of the world's largest food companies, was stripped of its AAA rating by Fitch Ratings and Moody's Investor Services. And without going into the details of Nestle, that, of course, is the international chocolate company that most of us know about that own all sorts of things. Um, this was in response, by the way, to a $21 billion stock buyback. It says the downgrading leaves only Johnson & Johnson, Toyota Motor, and ExxonMobil holding AAA ratings from Moody's Standard and Poor's and Fitch's ratings. That gives you a pretty good idea where to put your money. Who's doing well? Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, and ExxonMobil. Uh, corporate debt, paper money, it's all over the place. And when you read about the, the, the real problems here, I mean, we don't need to go into all the details about how Countrywide had to borrow... $11 billion or how the Federal Reserve on Friday uh, put a little psychological confidence into the market by reducing the discount rate. Um, the, the subprime and these mortgage problems are just going to continue. And uh, when you read, for instance, that Countrywide Bank, 
based in Alexandria, with loans that have grown dramatically over uh, since 2000. It's been pointed out that nearly 40% of the bank's $57.7 billion in deposits were uninsured by the FDIC as of March 31st. That's what's scary. You have a lot of mortgage companies functioning as banks, but they're not banks. They're not part of the federal insurance, FDIC, that will... Yeah, the bottom falls out of that, and yeah. it's going all the way down. So there's a lot of problems that are substantial. Um, they're not calamitous, but uh, one of the big problems here is the discrepancy between prices, expected prices, and real income or real wages. Um, as these charts show, productivity has been sort of steadily declining. Well, typical is a Washington Post article from over a year ago dated the 18th of May by Kristen Downey. She says, real wages after adjusting for inflation have been flat since 2001, according to the study. The study, which uh, analyzed debt, it says the debt of the typical American family earning about 45000 a year rose 33% from 2001 to 2004 uh, after adjusting for inflation. In the past five years, however, the costs of medical care, housing, food, cars, and household operations rose 11%, which pretty much wipes out all of the increase. Education debt rose 127% between 1992 and 2004, rising from $3,427 to $7,800 for the average family. So Those we've college loans, of course, there, yeah. which are uh, tuitions rise every year. Sure. And th what, what is really the story here is robbing Peter to pay Paul. You've heard that cliche. Well, the goal of the American economy is to keep creating a myth that these prices can keep going up while wages are flat and new younger people entering the market have massive college loan debt. They can't buy houses. So these houses that are sitting on in these markets, many of them wealthy markets like Ann Arbor, unfortunately are just going to sit there because the younger people have less real assets in their pockets. They have higher credit card debt, higher... Um, education debt, and uh, that's why these houses cannot be sold. So there, it has been a bubble. It's been created by um, Greenspan's easy money policies that were designed, by the way, to help reelect George Bush in 2004. Uh, these problems actually precede um, some of the recent uh, developments that uh, have indicated pain, sorrow, and difficulty for individual families. 250,000 people have lost their houses due to foreclosure this year. That's expected to go up to 2 million. That's what's on the horizon. Well, these things are all interconnected, too. It's worth pointing out that a local organization called Michigan PeaceWorks has calculated how much tax revenue uh, the state of Michigan has contributed to the war mm -hmm. in Iraq, and that's $12 billion yeah. just from Michigan. I saw that piece. It's a good one. Yeah, from Ann Arbor alone, taxes uh, directed towards the war uh, total $142 million. Well, 
<laughs> Taxes, of course, are necessary to uh, for the national defense and so forth, but they're also necessary to maintain infrastructure, to fund and uh, develop schools and school programs. And if you think about what $12 billion could do for schools or roads in Michigan, uh, it would create a lot of jobs. Indeed. And a number of other things, so... It is all interconnected. Uh, don't uh, be fooled by the fact that uh, money spent over there is indeed being taken out of uh, programs here. Uh, an interesting article uh, by Tom Raum over the uh, last week, Sunday's Ann Arbor News printed it here. as uh, worth mentioning at this point. It's entitled, Bush's Optimism Extends in All Directions. Economic Problems, Iraq War, Investigations of His Staff Hardly Phase Him. Mm-hmm. Reagan, of course, also exuded a great deal of confidence uh, in retrospect. Uh, that was largely just an illusion. And for those paying attention at the time, it was clearly an illusion. But there was a comfortableness to the man, even though his bumbling uh, demeanor uh, indicated a, rather a sense of cluelessness. Um, Bush may be optimistic, but he does not seem to exude the same sense of confidence that extends down to the... the the more simple-minded folk who are willing to believe that everything's okay. Well, he, he can't act as well, and it's interesting if you begin looking at the pictures of Bush now compared to what he looked like, say, four years ago before the Iraq War started. They're, they're very revealing. Yeah. Uh, he's aged considerably. Uh, he knows he's in deep doo-doo. And I'll just give out a brain damage award to him right now. It's uh, pretty outrageous that what has been sold as the Petraeus Report Yes. Upcoming here in mid-September, in less than a month, is actually going to turn out to be written by the White House. Uh, this shouldn't surprise us, by the way. The White House wrote the 9-11 mm-hmm. investigation report that was written by Philip Zelikow, um, closely connected to Condoleezza Rice. Uh, this and that allowed Cheney and Bush to give their uh, statements together. Together where they held hands and made sure that they didn't... Um, your story straight it's the same story because yeah. we're doing it together and of course one thing omitted from the 9-11 report was that bush spent about 40 percent of his first seven months on the job on vacation cutting brush down there in crawford while him and carl rove figured out how to uh, win re-election um so we'll just uh, give out a brain damage award on that score uh, it's pretty outrageous i think keith oberman put it Perfectly. He is now calling it the Betrayus <laughs> report. Uh, Betrayus, and I mean Petraeus. Right. It's easy to get the names confused. Um, and um, Mr. Crocker, the uh, newly installed ambassador to Iraq, apparently are going to testify before Congress. But what we're going to get is the half full, half empty analysis and of course the headline right now will be progress is being made uh yeah that's the story and they're gonna stick with it um a great quote here at the end of tom Raum's uh, associated press article on this bush's optimism here uh because it'll call up a metaphor familiar to uh, longtime listeners uh bruce buchanan a political scientist at university of texas says that even when Bush was Texas governor, quote, the optimism was there, the tendency to see through rose-colored glasses, 
At the presidential level, the pressure increases rather than decreases those tendencies. I think it starts off as optimism, and then it becomes political strategy. Strategy. Sorry, that's a Bugs Bunnyism there. In the face of criticism and bad news, eventually, as the bad news mounts, he's drinking the Kool Aid. Mm-hmm. Buchanan said, "Bush is indeed drinking the Kool Aid." A reference to the poisoned grape Kool Aid of Jim Jones and his cult of death. Bush's had a few glasses he's had a few glasses and of course carl rove has had a few glasses with him and uh without going into some of carl rove's uh rapping what was that the M- mc rove <laughs> man was that that is the scariest video uh <laughs> didn't see it but heard about it oh my god it's uh, unbelievable but uh it's interesting that things are beginning to emerge about the historical carl rove uh, once again, the Nixon archives uh-huh. provide us with more information about Karl Rove. Karl Rove back then was uh, plotting to run to become chairman of the College Republican, the uh, College Republicans, and he wrote a memo to Ann Armstrong, who interestingly resurfaced in the news recently when Cheney had his hunting mishap. Uh, right, right. They were on her ranch down there looking for quail or something. I don't remember what kind of bird they were. Fish in a barrel. Yeah. Um, and it's just uh, interesting to uh, get an eye for the analysis of of this document. Uh, the document uh, was an election program for the 74 midterm campaigns. And the writer, uh, Cheryl Gay uh, Stolberg, notes that Mr. Rove had a keen eye for organization and a propensity for slicing and dicing the electorate, the kind of micromanaging that has since become a hallmark of his campaigns. He offered suggestions from having college Republican clubs clubs show non-political films for fundraising. For example, John Wayne flicks and Reefer Madness (laughs) to developing a student guide to lobbying with a forward by Bush and Nixon. Uh, this is Elder Bush, who at the time was RNC chairman. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Rove's memorandum also proposes building a group of new federalism advocates modeled on Friends of Nixon. Few and far between on the college campuses in <laughs> those days. And suggested that he could meet in Washington for extensive brief- briefings with top administration officials like H.R. Haldeman and John Ehrlichman. Needless to say, this never happened. <laughs> They resigned in April of in disgrace, 1973, <laughs> with Richard Nixon famously calling them two of the finest public servants I've had the pleasure to know. <laughs> Great stuff. And of course, uh, Karl Rove was involved in some of the mischief making dirty tricks operations no of the Nixon re-election committee that, uh, so, well... What was part of a part of a spinoff of the uh, of the uh, plumbers' operations in the Nixon White House, the committee to reelect the president. Creep. One of the best inadvertent acronyms ever. I mean, wow. Quick, name the third president of the United States. Um, this is astonishing. Uh, I'll just give out a brain damage award to this headline: seventy percent of Americans can't. Um, that's 
rather alarming and I think is a illustrative of how seriously our uh, empire has declined. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, of course, was the third president and probably one of the five most important Americans that ever wielded a pen. Yeah, wielded a pen and founded the University of Virginia, gave us the Bill of Rights. And uh, while he had some personal problems with debt that are interesting to uh, read about when you uh, read biographies about Thomas Jefferson, I think it's pretty alarming when seven out of ten Americans uh, don't know who the third president of the United States is. And this, by the way, is just an article about the uh, the new gold uh, coins. Yeah, I'm not sure uh, if they mentioned uh, the nature of the group that were surveyed to determine that, but I... I clipped the same article myself. I take issue with uh, some of the uh, observations that the Mint director, mm-hmm. um, Edmund Moy, has stated in this article by Martin Krutzinger. Um, I, I'm a little suspicious that seven out of ten Americans couldn't name the third president. I mean, he's on Mount Rushmore. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's been on the nickel for low these many years. Um People don't use nickels anymore, though. Well, this is true. And they uh, certainly don't use the $2 bill. No, they never did, for reasons that I've always complained about. The yeah. the monetary system is, at this point, being driven by the drawers inside the cash registers. Right. And I've argued for years down here in Gray Matters, the country can save a lot of money by getting rid of the paper dollar and going with the dollar coin. Now, we've had several dollar coins, the big, huge Eisenhower dollars, which were impractical and unwieldy, to put it mildly, although probably fatal if thrown from a moving vehicle. Um, and undoubtedly to, a, a version of the dollar that George Washington supposedly yeah, threw across the Potomac. He probably skipped it across yeah. if it was that size, yeah. Uh, then we had the ill-fated Susan B. Anthony coin. Poor design, looked just like a quarter, uh, you know, infinitesimally bigger than a quarter. Yeah. Then the Sacagawea, which looked like, hey, this might work. It's a different color. It's got a woman, a Native American. You know, hey, this would be great. But there's no room for it in the drawers, so they're available at banks, um, but nobody ever used them, although parking meters uh, take them, vending machines take them. Now they've decided to scrap that and all the money that went into the development and all the publicity Mm -hmm. that was, you know, part of that campaign, too, to the dollar coins, which are now going to feature different presidents. And Edmund Moy, director of the Federal Mint, says, quote, My nieces and nephews know a lot more about geography than I did at their age, and the state quarters which featured the uh, the the 50 states and mm-hmm. a geographical feature on the back uh, of each one. The state quarters are playing an instrumental role in that. Hogwash <laughs> on both counts. Mm-hmm. Um, kids today don't know their geography very well because that is one of the programs that's been stripped from the schools because it's seen as superfluous and... Uh, you know, there's just not a concern to instruct children in knowing the shapes of countries, the relations of countries, and so forth. And also, I don't think those quarters had very much to teach about the states. I mean, okay, they had the date in which the state became a state, and, you know, one geographical feature, or, for example, horses were featured on the back of the Kentucky quarter. Well, now children know that horses are in Kentucky. Well, you know, wow. <laughs> Big deal. Edmund Moy is definitely uh, grotesquely overstating the case here. And I think that, you know, back in the 60s and 70s, uh, when uh, 
you and I were in school, we had regular geography lessons. Mm-hmm. It's different today the way geography is taught. You take a class that focuses on a region like South America, you know, Latin America, and you'll study that, but not the rest of the world, you know, unless you take another class. So we need to uh, go back to Thomas Jefferson here. Students need to study the Bill of Rights, to read the Bill of Rights. And again, you know, with the testing uh, emphasis in programs such as uh, No Child Left Behind. Um, it's all about performing well on tests and so therefore deep thoughtful analysis of things like the Bill of Rights which is graspable by you know high school age youth sure. certainly. And the important thing by the way about the Bill of Rights in the sense that he authored it. He didn't actually quote author it but he did give the suggestions to Madison who at the time was part of the Federalist uh, papers uh, group that consisted of John Jay and Alexander mm-hmm. Hamilton. Hamilton and Jefferson, of course, were basically the two uh, members of Washington's first cabinet that created the political party system that we know right. today. And, of course, their ideas uh, were in competition, but very significant in terms of how America developed as a nation uh, with respect to t- uh, Alexander Hamilton uh, developing our banking system Correct. and our industrial policy, if you want to call it, and Thomas Jefferson having uh, more faith in the little guy, so to speak, and an agrarian economy. Thomas Jefferson, by the way, also was instrumental, uh, and this is important for people that live in Ohio and Michigan, in creating uh, the fact that slavery was would be outlawed in the Northwest Territory mm-hmm. that uh, eventually became... Ohio, Michigan, Indiana, Illinois, and Wisconsin. Uh, and while he owned slaves and uh, did not uh, free them uh, in his uh, will the way uh, George Washington did, um, and is certainly one of the, uh, shall we say, less uh, attracted, uh, attractive things about Thomas Jefferson's life, um, I, I tend to believe that that actually probably is true. We talked, uh, I, I, one of my favorite examples of America's ignorance is the fact that 70% of Americans know who Judge Wapner is. Right. 9% know who the ch- Chief Justice of the Supreme Court is. This is back uh, when Rehnquist was Chief Justice. Uh, it's this sort of ignorance of basic American history that are very troubling and are why propaganda and myth um, are so available in our modern political discourse as embodied by Karl Rove, for instance, you know, the divide and conquer and create distractions for the American public um, to confuse them about what's really important. Well, Britney Spears and her problems with psychology and her own children uh, occupy the covers of most of the magazines on the newsstands at the moment, so... Sad. Sad. Um, and just a uh, an item about the significance of uh, one attractive thing about Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson also was instrumental in creating the Library of Congress. Mm-hmm. His uh, collection was the beginnings yeah. of that library. And, of course, the significance of founding the University of Virginia, one of the things that he was most proud of, uh, one of his accomplishments that he was most proud of. It says, uh, and this is a uh, an item about um, lifespan from a recent uh, 
31st of uh, July edition of uh, Science Times. It says older people who lack health literacy, that is, they cannot read and understand basic medical information, may be paying a higher price. Writing in the July 23rd archives and internal medicine researchers say that one particular characteristic of a poor education, low reading skills, may account for much of the problem. Researchers found uh, that one study found that people who did not graduate from high school lived an average of nine years less than graduates. Um, and it goes on to basically say people that read live longer. Uh, they have improved um, cardiovascular health, and uh, it will expand your lifespan. Not to mention your intellectual horizons, indeed. which may indeed be part of an increased lifespan, uh, which provides an interesting segue to an article that appeared uh, by Stephen Witte over the weekend as well. Uh, a generation of film giants fades to black, observing the passings of Vigmar Bergman, uh, Michael Antonioni, uh, uh, Robert Altman, of course, died last year. By the way, his film Nashville is being shown tomorrow night at the Michigan Theater. That's a classic film worthy of your attention. Highly recommended, by the way, for its uh, its interesting take on politics. Uh, it's, yeah, it came out in the mid-70s yeah. and a uh, very transitional period. And you can see how some of the, <laughs> shall we say, a basic theme of the plot is, is relevant to today's political discourse. But uh, Stephen Weddy's article goes on to observe that the culture that nurtured these uh, internationally uh, famed directors uh, of films that are typically categorized in this country as art house pictures is generally how most foreign films were seen in the 50s through 70s at the smaller uh, theaters. Of course, living in Ann Arbor, we have the luxury of the Michigan Theater and the State Theater and, of course, the film festival here. Um, and so we are exposed to international film on a much more regular basis than your average American. But it is sad to note the resistance or reluctance of the chain theaters to incorporate more foreign films. For example, Bollywood produces more films uh, per year than, than, uh, than Hollywood, certainly. And I think you know that uh, a theater in this area could make good money by routinely featuring a bollywood picture you know mm -hmm. a lot of people who aren't even of indian background are now interested in that sort of thing there's a, a squeamishness or a willingness to kind of sell the american public short uh, crouching tiger hidden dragon was a blockbuster hit and yet it had subtitles you know so People are willing to... It was available as a dubbed version, too, of course. And by the way, there's a Japanese and Chinese films every week uh, here at, at the University yeah. of Michigan. Uh, th those are weekly uh, features here on campus. It is sad to observe, though, that uh, two very good smaller films, uh, Werner Herzog's Rescue Dawn and the director of Sunshine, his name slips my mind at the moment, but those films uh, left after about a three-week period here in town um, to be replaced by Rush Hour on three screens. Mm -hmm. Now, that's three screens at Quality 16 and three screens at Showcase, so does Ann Arbor really need Rush Hour on six screens? Well, 
I know a lot of people who still wanted to see Sunshine and Rescue Dawn and yet weren't given the chance. Um, Luckily, by the way, Rescue Dawn has resuscitated at Q16. Oh, so. has it? Good. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. Just this week. If you have if, missed it, go see it. Yeah, please see it. It's an no. excellent film by one of uh, the world's greatest living directors. And, uh, you know, test your horizons. Don't just go for the formulaic films. Uh, like reading is good for your health. I think watching international cinema is good for your health, too. And uh, keep it keep it alive. And those movies, by the way, are worth seeing on the big screen. Absolutely. Because this is the work of art mm-hmm. that this director intended to make. Yes, you got the DVD options and... Okay, you can convenience factors there. Lounge on your couch with your sweetie and eat popcorn. Um, there's good aspects to that, but go see some of these movies in the big screen when you have an opportunity. And it's not just the big screen because there's something about the communal nature of sitting together with people, random strangers, fellow members of your community, sharing an experience uh, simultaneously as an individual and collectively as a group in the dark watching a big picture um it's a unique experience and something that the dvd experience really deprives you of indeed could be grumpy groundhog time we're could be well we're, 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 we're get getting to, there it's we'll 659 so we're nearing the end oh but, are uh, we okay yeah. well i'll get to this grumpy groundhog first i, I always love stories like this <laughs> this is a grumpy groundhog too the picture's great <laughs> yeah um this is uh a former candidate republican governor uh candidate from georgia um who uh she was the state school superintendent and she embezzled six hundred thousand dollars in education money pleading guilty this is dated uh, may 11th of 2006 Money laundering and fraud, and agreed to testify against two co-defendants, the former Linda Schrenko, uh, 56 of Augusta, will spend eight years in prison and must repay the money, which prosecutors say she used to pay for a facelift and a failed (laughs) gubernatorial run in 2002. (laughs) Wow. And, you know, it's interesting. There's a big story today about Michael Vick. Uh, plea, pleading guilty, right, right. Uh, dog fighting, and I, I doubt that he's going to spend eight years in jail. But uh, yeah, if you get a load of this woman, she needed more than a facelift. Well, maybe it wasn't just the gubernatorial campaign that was failed. <laughs> Shrenko, what a great name. Maybe they can make a movie about her uh, exploits. But yeah, stealing $600,000 of education funds for... Uh, That's got to make you feel good at night. <laughs> when you're the superintendent to get a facelift... When, honey, you need more than a face. <laughs> wow. You need a new hairdo. <laughs> and a new brain do. That's, uh, that's, that's great. I mean, I love that. Um, she was the first woman elected to statewide office in a non-judicial post in Georgia, by the way, when she won the top spot. At the State Department of Education in 1994. Interesting stuff. Georgia, of course, is one of the states that's uh, in recent years, you know, over the past 20, 15, 16 years, is used to be kind of a Democratic-leaning state. That's where Jimmy Carter was from. But mm-hmm. uh, it's really gone Republican uh, big time in recent years. And uh, Atlanta, by the way, is one of those cities that's got an incredible uh, subprime mortgage problem. 
Yeah, the development uh, in Atlanta and on the outskirts of Atlanta has just been out of control for uh, about 10 years. And then there's this item. <laughs> I'll let you read it. Okay. Jerem uh, from D Germany, prison for man, 73, who killed fiance, 84, a retired 73-year-old minor, was sentenced to eight years and nine months in prison for killing his 84-year-old fiance.